welcome back. It's been a while. Great to have you back in the show again. Yeah, I think it's been uh, since Flexmas special 2021, maybe. <laughs> yeah, so it was about time. But uh, just for context, for people who haven't listened to you on this podcast, you know, and it's been a while. So last I've been, time we sp- I've been busy. Yeah, <laughs> we'll get to that. I'm getting to that. So for context, uh, you didn't have anything to do with Avance Gas. So just to recap, what happened? You started as a chair, now you're the CEO. Tell us the, the short story. And no, I, I was actually on the board in 21, and then I took over as executive chairman in 22. Uh, and, you know, I liked the assignment. So we, you know, market was pretty good. Uh, I felt we had a good organization. It's a bit interesting segment. So uh, eventually we agreed that I took it over on more like full time. So I'm, I'm CEO of Advanced Gases, as well as, of course, CEO of, of Flex LNG. So I've been working with Advanced Gas now for maybe about two years or so, yeah. Just going to the practical details. How do you do it? Do you spend Tuesday at Avance and then you walk down Wednesday to Flex, or how does it work? No, because uh, the chief commercial officer of Flex, I also brought him in, so he's also chief commercial officer of uh, Avance. Uh, uh, so we sit next to each other and we talk about the market all all day long, and you know it's, it, we are in the same office, so it's it's just a short walk, and you go from the Flex office to the Avance office, and. You know, there are some similar drivers, even though it's quite different from LNG. LNG is more industrial shipping, uh, more like a liner business. And, 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 and usually you have longer term contracts. Uh, yeah. uh, VLGC or the LPG market. VLGC means very large gas carriers. So these are the biggest LPG carriers. That market is more like a tanker market where it's mostly predominantly spot oriented. And we are also mostly spot focused. So it's a bit different trade, but the drivers are the same. It's the, it's the, of course, the explosion in volumes from US. Yeah. It's been that in, in LNG, where suddenly now US is the biggest exporter. Uh, and they are planning to expand their capacity a lot uh, in LPG also. It's driven by the shale boom in US, where uh, US become the, you know, in a fairly short period of time, they become the biggest, yeah. biggest lifter of VLGC cargos by far. But, but just one question on, uh, you said you brought Marius Foss on chief commercial as well. Is that sort of one of the evidence of what makes the Jon Fredriksen system a bit unique? Because you can actually, two people run two companies at the same time. That shouldn't be so easy for other companies if they don't have that system in place. So is that one of the drivers why, you know, yeah, yeah. you get we, results we in quite, that environment? quite lean environment where you have... In reality, six shipping companies run out of the same office, about 250 ships being uh, operated out of the rather small office we have at Akebrygge. So we have Frontline in the tankers, Golden Ocean in the bulkers, SFL in more maritime leasing, and where the, most of their assets are uh, container ships, and then Flex on LNG, uh, Avance on VLGCs, and then the private company Sea Tankers. So we operate, we talk to each other, we cooperate, we have a lot of shared services so that, you know, the, the companies, they don't have to build up a big organization around themselves. So everybody is sitting on a big uh, chunk of people. So rather than doing that, we we have built up a, a, a shared service company, Front Ocean, where, you know, we have IT, insurance, technical management. So rather than everybody hiring a lot of people, we we kind of pull them, uh, uh, which makes it uh, more cost efficient. 
Uh, and I also think a lot leaner. And that you can see on our GNI A cost or OPEX cost, we are being run very cost efficient. But there is a limit. So you don't think you can add another company to run? (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully not. (laughs) Uh, Can we start with, uh, since we're starting with Avance Gas, uh, you recently announced a sale on a vessel. Uh, It seems like some people were surprised by the price, but then you referred to a slide you did many months ago and you said, hey, I told you guys. So what has happened? What's the summary here? And why are people, why are some surprised about the price you were able to get? Yeah, I think if you read... Both Pareto, ABG, DNB, Arctic, they say price was about 25-30% higher than what they have pegged the, 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 the ship value at. We had an overview of our fleet uh, in February 28 when we reported Q4 and we kind of said, okay, stocks gone up a bit, but you know, shipbuilding prices have really gone up a lot, both new builds and, and second hand, because new builds are pushing up second hand, especially when the market is good, because then you have a value of having a ship on, on water. So uh, we just for simplicity, we pegged this ship at 50, even though we said last transactions are more like 55. But to have a conservative estimate, we put it at 50 and calculated a, a, a you know, a, a NAV per share or value per share of $11. It's about $8.50 or $8.40 today. Uh, and then we sell it at $60. Uh, and actually, you know, we, we also then get the, the wonder of leverage because the, the, we have a financial lease on the ship. 35 million. So rather than releasing 15 million, we are releasing 25 million dollars, which is 67% more than that estimate. So if, I think that evidence that we 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 the, the values are real. Uh, we sold now four ships the last one and a half years, uh, all above well above book value. This is of course the best and <laughs> the best uh, price we have received. Last time we sold one ship uh, last autumn, it was more like 50 million in line with what we, we, we said, but, but price has gone up and that's also because new building price has gone up and the spot market is really hot, which means that people are willing to pay to get a ship today rather than yeah. going to the yard and getting a ship in 27, paying yeah, probably about 110 million now for a new build. And we have ordered six ships at 80. <laughs> yeah, interesting. But if you just take it up one perspective and if you ask the question, what makes a good sale in shipping? You know, you have one perspective, which is, you know, the market decides the price, Mr. Market is there and fixing everything. And then you have the other side of the equation, the relationship, the reputation, Hmm. creativity, other factors, sentiment. Can you explain how that works? So is there, can you do better sales if you have some other more intangible assets at your disposal, like reputation, relationships etc or not really i i wouldn't put too much value in it uh, it's a fairly liquid secondhand market although that's a bit surprising because it's never been this liquid before we also see our competitor uh, bw been selling a lot of ships at pretty good value values so uh, but uh, i do think of course we get a good price because we maintain our ship at a very good technical level we we spend I spent quite a lot of money now doing 15-year docking on uh, this ship. And and of course, we get paid for that when we are selling the ship because they see it's yeah. in, in, in pristine condition. Yeah. So there's not a factor if you go more to the Middle East or other markets where they can have a valuation differentiated because it's so liquid. So it's not that much to get from it. 
This ship we actually we are not sold to Middle East okay. and uh, not uh, not any of the others. So, yeah. uh, but you know there are buyers everywhere. Uh, this is a global business, uh, and of course Middle East is a big region of exports. It's the second biggest. So U.S. is the biggest region, and then Middle East with uh, United Emirates, Iran, Saudi. These players are pretty big exporters of LPG as well. Yeah. If we just look at uh, Avance Gas and LPG, uh, it has been an, a remarkable story last six months or one year or however you want to put it. What would be sort of the the voice memo shareholder letter that you, if you were to wrote it to investors to say, this is what happened, this is why the share price has gone so much up and what can we expect going forward? How mm. would that look? Because it's been quite remarkable, the... Yeah, but I think it's mostly, it's a bit similar to Flex where we were a couple of years ago because the stock was then, I was talking to you maybe two, three years ago and the stock was not performing well. Uh, we had COVID 2020 and then everybody was worried about the order book for 21. So uh, LNG, everybody said oh, LNG market is going to be terrible in 21 and 22 and uh, everybody was mistaken. Uh, market in 21 was the best in since 40, yeah, 13, 14. So, so, um, so that's kind of, uh, you had a depressed share price. And then, of course, if you calculate percentage, <laughs> the stock going up, uh, it, it looks like a lot. Uh, it's a bit similar with Avance. The stock's been hammered. People have had a very poor sentiment about 23, not 21, but 23. And then 23 turns out to be the best year since uh, 2015. Um, because shipping is hard because you can say okay here are the new buildings here are the supply growth and then you make some equation and you figure figure out where the utilization and if the utilization is low you get lower rates but it's not only about numbers of ships and the supply growth supply growth has been much more robust than People have been thinking, you know, there's a, a story in Wall Street Journal today, US is set to have a record high crude oil put this year. And the fields in US is getting more gaseous. So the gas to oil ratio is going up, which means that they get a lot of LPG they need to sell. So we've been had a positive driver on the export side. At the same time, uh, we have seen delays on new buildings. And that's something we talked about last autumn. We didn't believe this schedule of new buildings because we have seen delays at yards. So su supply of ships become less. And then uh, we have had bottlenecks in Panama, which we also talked a lot of in the past. Uh, the Panama Canal wasn't really uh, kind of scaled to US becoming a huge exporter of LNG and LPG. Panama Canal was uh, expanded to take uh, more container traffic. And containers, they pay the highest price to get through the canal. So there's limit uh, space available for uh, VLGCs and LNGs to some extent, although LNGs are prioritized above mm. uh, VLGC. It then means that a lot of ships need to have a longer route. So, you know, all these drivers are kind of creating a, a fantastic condition for the uh, market. Another driver is uh, all this glut of... LPG in the US is driving down US prices to, you know, bargain levels. Inventories are really high in the US, meaning the um, price of LPG is low. 
Uh, and that means the price difference between the price in US and Far East is very high. It means you can make a killing moving a cargo from US to, mm. to, to, to Asia. And that or means that people can pay f- more for freight. Could be a good segue to ask why you announced buying two new, sh- two new ships with an option of two more. Yeah. How was that process? Was it an easy decision or... I wasn't easy, but we felt we had we've been negotiating for quite some time, and we felt we had a really good price on those assets. Uh, it's an interesting uh, class. Uh, these are smaller, so VLGC, very large gas carriers, MGC is medium-sized gas carrier. So these are about half the size. But that means you can take those cargos into uh, more ports. Uh, a lot of ports they have limitation on the size of the ships mm. and. You know, especially if you go to, like, say, Africa, you know, <laughs> you, you need smaller ships. Another feature is that they are ammonia carriers. Ammonia is something that is growing. There's a lot of people having projects for especially blue ammonia, uh, both in U.S. and Middle East. In U.S. because of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is giving a lot of incentives. Uh, ammonia cargos tend to be smaller, so these are very ideal ammonia carriers. So it gives us a bit more flexibility. It's a good LPG carrier, but also ammonia, which where we see a, a lot of customers asking about uh, mm. about this. Uh, and then the price was really very attractive, and the build time was very attractive. So we just felt it was a a, a good investment to do because of mm. these various factors. And then we are. Uh, cash rich we have a lot of cash on our balance sheet we have been now selling some of the older ships mm-hmm. so we, we have the capacity to, to to invest in some new ships it's the hardest trade almost to figure out if we should buy these ships or return them to shareholders given the philosophy so you have to think that the flexibility and these ships outperforms giving the dividends yeah, no, back. for us it's been about renewing the fleet yeah so we have had five 2008 nine ships yeah. these are <laughs> not eco ships so they are burning a lot of more fuel uh, so we've been selling four of them we only have one left so while we've been selling those we're taking delivery of new bigger size ships dual fuel which can also mm-hmm. burn LPG so meaning that you can burn some of the cargo and they get you know in that sense they are very similar to LNG ship you burn part of the cargo as fuel yeah. this fuel is much more <laughs> environmentally friendly than burning bunker soil Uh, and then also the efficiency uh, of the motor is increased by burning this fuel. And lastly, they are bigger. So you, you're basically reducing carbon emissions by, yeah. call it 40%. So we've been renewing the fleet. Uh, and then, of course, the market's been good. So it's not like we've only been uh, renewing the fleet. We've also been returning a lot of cash flow to our yeah. shareholders. So we hiked our dividend 10 times from Q4. Uh, 21 to Q4 22 from 5 cents to 50 cents we continue paying 50 cents in uh, in Q1 we will be reporting Q2 in uh, in uh, end of August but we are already guided mm. that numbers will not be far off the, the, the very strong numbers in Q1 Q3 we are booking now actually we're booking now September cargos market's been really good uh, this quarter as well So I think you know outlook for Q3, uh, Q3 is, is, is very strong and, and usually Q4 you will see a lot of clogging in Panama so we're yeah. pretty upbeat about Q4 as well. So for sure 2023 will be a fantastic year for Avance uh, which means we will be renewing, investing in some new ships, selling older ships and 
paying very very substantial dividends. Uh, just one question on ammonia. What's the best part about it and the worst part? I think Rista said they are looking at 4x, 5x in the production of ammonia. Yeah, like yeah. you said, the reasons behind it. Pro- but pro- that's probably too low. Just a huge wave. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's not like it's, it's a no-brainer. Of course, uh, it's expensive to make. Um, so it's not like uh, it's a silver bullet uh, in that sense. Uh, of course, we have talked in the past on this podcast about hydrogen, and of course, <laughs> hydrogen is extremely difficult to 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 kind of handle. Um, it's very flammable. It's very small, so it can leak very easily. You need to have minus two hundred and fifty-three degrees <laughs> if you liquefy it, which is close to absolute zero, uh, which means a lot of boil-off. So hydrogen, it's 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 very difficult to to handle. Of course, if you if you kind of mix it with nitrogen, uh, ammonia is a much easier uh, kind of fuel. However, it's toxic. And if you don't burn it properly, you will have ammonia slip, which is uh, much worse than methane slip. So, so there are uh, challenges. Um, however, so whether it will be ammonia for as a fuel market, I, I'm not sure yet, to be honest. But what we are pretty sure about is ammonia is still a huge market. And today, 99% of that market is black ammonia, which means it's, it's, <laughs> it's not clean at all. Uh, so we do see that uh, the ammonia business also need to clean up, making ammonia from blue uh, ammonia, possibly longer term green ammonia, maybe even pink ammonia, let's see. But that market will also represent some opportunities for us. So if, if it's not going to as a fuel, if, if it's going to be a future fuel for shipping, you really need to have a very high CO2 price probably coupled with some subsidies in order to make that yeah. work. Yeah. But it gives optionality regardless. There's yeah. many different options. Um, if we just take a segue over to Flex soon, what is the similar similarities between the investor base in Avance relative to Flex? Of course, Flex is listed in US. That's one thing, of course. But are there any other factors? Or is it sort of the same type of crowd you can yeah. bring along for both journeys? Well, we have one, you know, clear Similarity is, of course, John Fredriksen family are the biggest shareholder, owning about 44% of Flex and then 77% of Avance Gas. Uh, in terms of investor base, Avance Gas is a pretty small company, uh, market cap 600 million plus, uh, listed only in Oslo. Uh, given the lack of free float, it's not on the main listing, so it's mostly Norwegian retails. I would say. Um, for Flex, it's a bit different. Uh, that company is more sizable. There's more free float, uh, about 56% than free float. And listed in the US, market cap 1.6 billion or so. So it's, it's a, a lot bigger. So that means uh, investor base is different. Most of the trading today, 80, 85% of the trading, maybe even 90 at some days, are US. Uh, it's not really a lot of institutions. It's it's a, quite a lot of retail. So the, so in advance you have more yeah. like Norwegian retail. Flex you have more uh, US retail. Why is that? <laughs> I think it's a bit uh, you know of course it's one thing is about the listing, but but Flex is a it's a it's a more like a yield case. 
it's uh, it's you will have a lot of backlog first open ship is in 27 and we pay a really stable high dividend uh, which a lot of us investors appreciate it's uh, you can kind of take it to the bank and you every quarter you get a check and and uh, and, and and that's quite popular in in the us as uh, you know my colleague Ole Bjarte has shown with sfl which has been a huge success listed in uh, us in 2004 mm. so uh, and been paying a quarterly dividends ever since. Um, but isn't that a good case for institutions as well? Not always. If you are a fund manager and you get a lot of dividends, you have to reinvest that dividend. So actually, a lot of fund managers uh, rather prefer buybacks because then they don't get this check that needs to get reinvested. So uh, sometimes retail investors are more like they like the income investors. They get uh, some money to spend. Yeah. So if you are a retiree, uh, you know, you get some income on, on your investments. If you buy back the stock, you do, yeah. you have to sell some stock in order to get that income. Uh, a cool story on Flex Energy was the um, the 10-year benchmark. It was rated the second best investment you could do. Of course, it depends on the timeline uh-huh. and yeah. where do you start, but still, it, the percentage was quite amazing. How yeah. would you summarize that? Maybe don't people don't know that, especially in the US side. Yeah, now of course, in finance, I had the story, uh, best stocks the last decade in Oslo Stock Exchange. And of course, this was from 2013 to 2023 or so at a certain time. Uh, and then, of course, Flex was uh, number two, uh, 2,222.3% yeah. return, I believe, total return. So, of course, it's been uh, highly successful. Uh, Only beaten by uh, Kitron, I believe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't that much either. But uh, no, no. So I, I think you know we've been successful in executing that strategy we talked about already in 1718. Yep. You know, buy ships at the right time at very attractive prices. Uh, let's call it 180, 185 million. It's today 265, and, and lead time is much longer and then build the organization around that. And then once the market gets uh, better, uh, lock sh- those ships on long-term contracts. Of course, we were delayed in the executing that strategy. Uh, plan was to start doing that in 2020, but then COVID happened and derailed our plans. Yeah. But then once COVID uh, kind of became less of an issue, we started doing this from 21 and we locked in a lot of ships in 21. We continued doing that in 22 where we added 38 years of minimum backlog. Uh, right now we have first open ships, as I mentioned, 27. So we are marketing those. Um, this is two ships early 27 or first half of 27. So that's it's about half a year earlier than the newest uh, or the, the available mm-hmm. slots on, on yards today. So we, we are optimistic about being able to put those on, on longer term contracts eventually. Um, and also because the price now of the ships are so high and with also high interest rate, it means that in order to defend such an investment, and if you are buying a ship speculatively today, you basically need $100,000 plus for 10 years in order to uh, kind of get a reasonable return on, yeah. on, on those ships. So that means we, we, we've been guiding about 80,000 TC time charter equivalent earnings for our fleet for this year. So we do think that we can lock in ships on longer term contracts on higher rates than we have today. So they they will be kind of accretive to our kind of fleet profile. Yeah. 
So if you were to do a business case based on this performance, it, the conclusion would be the right timing, the right investments, and mm. also you know being a bit adaptable to the strategy. Yeah. Is that it? Nah, you know, in shipping, you need to really invest at the right times. If you're in, you know, I would say, two, sixty-seven percent of the time, you should never invest. So you need to invest when you are on a, uh, yeah, when you get the ships at a reasonable price, and then of course most segments in shipping, you're not able to really lock in ships for five to ten years charters. That's not really feasible in in tankers and bulkers, but in LNG, which is industrial shipping, you are able to do that. So, so locking in ships on, on, on contracts and kind of just harvest that cash flow. And then, uh, since there's a lot of capital involved, you also need to do the financial engineering right. You know, it's not only about getting yeah. the, the kind of the, the right margin, but you know, structure a financing where you have a bit of diversity on maybe leases, banks, maturities um, uh, and uh, for us uh, we put 400 million of revolver so we can have cash available but not really pay a lot for having that access to capital so uh, yeah yeah. so so you can say when it's a good time it will be very intriguing to look at new deals see if you can buy some other ships but you should instead then look at maybe financial engineering tell the CFO to rather look at you know how to hedge interest rates and you know, yeah. reap the rewards. But that is maybe easier said than to do all the time. Oh, yeah, of course, it's always nice to build new ships. It's fun. <laughs> That's why people do it. Uh, but uh, we've been more focused on, we're, you know, I could build new ships now, pay 265 with kind of, you know, fully delivered, price would be 280 plus. And then I got those ships end of 27. But I have already two ships in 27. It's much better for me and the shareholders that we focus on them and, and find them a long-term charters uh, rather than you know running around building new ships. That's the easiest thing you can do. Yeah. If you look at the, the macro in the financial markets, it will become a bit harder. Maybe investors tend to be a more selective Hmm. Is that something you notice as well in the conversations with banks, investors, that the climate we're heading into now will make people a bit more selective because the alternatives looks good in different asset, asset classes as well? Yeah, of course, right now it's uh, quite compelling to put the money uh, to the US Treasury. You get 5% return, <laughs> risk-free, <laughs> depending on <laughs> what they do on this uh, debt ceiling. And But uh, of course, you are competing with a pretty good hurdle rate here for 5%. So that means uh, you need to, to, to give a, a decent uplift to the, those kind of levels. Um, I think banks today uh, in shipping are quite forward-leaning because most shipping segments been doing pretty well the last couple of, of years. Uh, and has been lasting for a longer period than, than, uh, than maybe in the past. So Bulkers had two fantastic years in 21 and 22. Tankers are doing great. Uh, containers, not really fantastic now, but they've been making a fortune. LNG's been good, VLGC's been good. So, so most ship owners are in a pretty good, good financial situation. And that means banks are not taking any losses. Mm. So, so still credit is uh, available, but credits become much more expensive because suddenly you have 5% to use government and then you have the margin on top of that and suddenly debt financing, which was possible to get for, call it 4%, is mm. today maybe 7 
And if you're doing bonds, <laughs> you yeah. are talking double digits. So capital become more expensive. And that is really changing a lot of things in the financial markets this year. I think one big surprise, been oil price been so low, even though OPEC is cutting quite a lot, because when interest rates goes to this level, holding oil becomes quite pricey. Because if you store it, you have to finance it. And when interest rate was zero, cost of storing oil wasn't really high. Today it's much more expensive, so we're driving down <laughs> inventories to a, a, a very low level, uh, which I think will create uh, <laughs> some uh, some uh, effects later on. Because this kind of path of driving down inventories of oil to these levels is not sustainable longer term. Uh, we also see too little investment in new capacity. Um, you know, even cop- copper price. You know, you need copper for the energy transition, whether it's windmill, electrical cars, copper price is down uh, yeah, 10-15% now. Uh, all the projections says that you are you don't have enough copper to kind of uh, to finance or to kind of make this energy transition, even though uh, still prices are low because it's expensive to to hold copper when when five percent interest rate. Hmm. So. Yeah, I think in terms of investors, investors have been lukewarm to shipping. Uh, I think people are today waking up a bit, but still, if you go to the US, there's not really a lot of interest for shipping. It's a very special niche. <laughs> in Norway, of course, there are more interest for shipping. Yeah. yeah. But, but looking back, you, you predicted that the inflation would come and the interest rates would go up. Do you have a similar idea in today's landscape? What will happen in one year, in two years? Or is it very hard to say because there's a lot of different narratives going around about mm. recession, not a recession? Yeah, it's the most odd recession I think we ever had. Or It's an odd situation now because we've been ramping up interest rates to a very high level. Everybody thinks that you know we would drive the economy to the wall. But still, these job numbers, and there was job numbers yesterday as well, they are fantastic. So it's kind of a re- recession where with plenty of jobs and unemployment is very low. Um, but uh, in general, I, I think if we continue hiking this interest rate, we, we are going to get a reaction. Something always break when uh, the Federal Reserve is hiking at this level. I think, you know, we... In Flex, we, we kind of warned about this in uh, February 21, I believe. Mm. And we started hedging interest rate one more than a year before that uh, Fed started to hike. I think that was March 22. And then Fed's been hiking very aggressively. We've been, we, we had a very high hedge ratio. We've been cutting duration lately because we do think that at one time here, something's going to break and we don't want to have too much of the longer term uh, hedges. And then we actually saw this happening here in in, uh, March when Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, Credit Suisse, these banks collapsed and we had the biggest movement in two-year interest rates ever. So uh, within a week, two-year interest rates went from 5.2 to 3.8%. So Mm. (laughs) almost 1.5% change in the two-year rate in one week. So, uh, of course, both in Flex and Avance, we gobbled up. We did a lot of one- to two-year swaps 
because you have a fantastic carry. If you're paying 5%, then you can hedge two-year rates for. Yeah. Now, uh, two-year rates come up again, so it's back to where we were prior to Signature Bank and uh, SVB Bank uh, collapsing. And 10-year rates come up as well. So, uh, you know, I... Uh, I, I I'm fearful that uh, we we will have a recession and, mm. and 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 Fed will have to pivot at one time here. Yeah. If something breaks and we get a recession, what are the interesting second and third consequences of that? I I think uh, you know it's it, what happens then is usually interest rates gets down a lot. So kind of for flex, mm. the value of our backlog will increase because the discounted value of that backlog will go up. <laughs> so uh, of course, if you have a recession, of course you have less demand, but uh, right now we covered to uh, at least 27 anyways. So usually after you have a recession and interest rates come down, uh, growth will eventually pick up again. So it's not certain you will have a very uh, deep recession. For advance, it's more sen- sensitive, of course, to a recession because yeah. you are you don't really have any backlog. Uh, you will get some help from lower interest rates, but that doesn't <laughs> really compensate for the, the lack of demand. So so that's a more cyclical uh, company yeah. than, than Flex. But you want it to stay a cyclical company? Yeah, or you I, never know, like, context. Yeah, I, I, it's impossible to replicate the backlog. So, of course, we maybe we can do a one or two, maybe even a three-year contract. We, we have done some FFA coverage, where we are coveraging the market risk with the derivatives. But, but it's not really feasible to big, uh, build a big backlog. Yeah. Let's look at some uh, commodities news and maybe we'll go market by market. Uh, one story was China and LNG. They're doing a lot of deals. Yeah. What is the overview on that? No, they, they are signing up the, uh, a lot of new volumes, both from Qatari, uh, but even more so from US. Uh, and, and they are, you know, it's a pretty good strategy for them. Uh, We've is it had, long-term thinking? Yeah, because, you know, China, they are not reliant on the spot market anymore. They have all the volumes from uh, long-term contracts. So when they sign up in Qatar, they basically sign up uh, LNG at a pretty big discount to to oil. It's less discount now than in the past, but still it's a discount to oil. So uh, they didn't feel any pinch when you had this uh, energy crisis. They were actually selling spot cargoes into Europe. And then they're signing up in US where Henry Hub plus a tolling fee basically. And that's pretty cheap uh, LNG. So uh, for them, it's of course their economy is growing. Eventually coal needs to peak uh, and, and it's a replacement of, of, of coal. Uh, so it makes a lot of sense, uh, and they've signed up basically almost half, forty percent of all the all the new LNG volumes. Europe is reluctant uh, because net zero twenty fifty or so. It's hard to sign up twenty uh, year contracts starting in twenty seven twenty eight when mm. you don't know what's the political landscape uh, in that period. So when we're saying Europe's been no. Finally, this year, Europe's been signing up more LNG than China, but it's not really Europe in that sense. It's it's mostly European majors like BP, Shell, Total. Uh, and of course, the, the, the beauty with signing up US volumes is the flexibility of it. So if they sign up those volumes and European 
buyers are not there because of EU coming up with certain limitations, then they are free to sell that cargo to Asia or wherever mm. that uh, will be. So, so the, the, a kind of de-risk their strategy. Yeah, I mean, uh, Stephen from Bloomberg had a question he wanted me to ask, and that was Europe's perspective, but also is there a demand destruction consequence? Yeah, further down the line, and what does that you know? Implies? Demand destruction. Yeah, you have demand destruction or you have demand subversion. It really depends on. Are you thinking this is going to be destroyed forever, or is going to? So, if, of course, if chemical factories and ammonia factories are closing down in Germany and moving somewhere else, you have demand destruction. If you have closed downs because the prices are too high, it's subversion, and if prices gets lower, that that capacity might come back. So now, right now, of course, we have had uh, LNG prices coming down to discount to to, to 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 oil, and actually discount to kind of burning coal when you when you add the CO2 price in Europe. So, so that it, that might kind of create uh, uh, more demand and and maybe less demand destruction, of course. But if you look at Germany's economy, they've been <laughs> addicted to cheap Russian gas. So it's more the questions, will kind of the Germany industrial complex be able to run on more expensive gas? Because uh, LNG will probably be more expensive than the Russian pipeline gas. So that's uh, if that is the case, then you might see uh, demand destruction. I, I do think you already see it, but because of some other reasons, and that's the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, where there's so many incentives to invest in the US. So companies like even Yara or German companies, why invest in a new ammonia factory or a chemical factory in Europe? You just move it to US or potentially Middle East, where there are better incentives to do it. And that might, of course, uh, create some demand destruction on LNG. And that's also a perfect segue to US becoming the biggest exporter. Is that here to stay? For foreseeable future? Yeah, they're going to be the biggest this year. Of course, Qatar is really expanding. So Qatar has 77 million tons of nameplates. They can produce maybe up to 80. US is going to produce maybe 80-something this year. Maybe call it 85. Qatar is expanding 49. So far, it's only 33, but it's going to be 49 million. So you can add almost 50 million on top of that 80. So 100 30 million ton, 125, 130 million tons from Qatar. I think US is going to be bigger because uh, uh, they have a lot of expansion projects. Chenier announced a big project, 20 million tons, Sabine Pass expansion. You had Port Arthur recently being uh, FID'd, meaning it's it's going to be built. Venture Global is expanding Placaminas and CP2. And I think within a couple of days, the next decade is going to announce uh, Rio Grande project, probably next week on uh, LNG 23 in Vancouver. <laughs> so, so I think actually US will be even bigger than Qatar, even though Qatar is expanding a lot. Yeah. And if you forecast that, how sure are you? Because it takes from an announcement. I think the to Department and... of Energy, the one of the ministers there, or U.S. Department of Energy, he was at a conference in Asia uh, last week where he put up some numbers which are <laughs> mind-boggling. So, so 
uh, for sure so it's probably going to be uh, bigger than Qatar, yes. Are there any other stories that people who are interested in the LNG market who wants to calculate, look at it, where would you point the direction? Other places or are these the big uh, topics? Qatar and the US are the big one. Then of course Africa has a lot of stranded gas which are cheap. So we do see Mozambique, the two projects there, uh, Rovuma and Mozambique LNG. There's a huge resource in Tanzania where you know companies like Equinor is involved. So there are opportunities to also ramp up uh, uh, production in Africa. Okay. Mm. Just a, a question on LNG because it's you can always tell the good story about is a transition fuel is better than coal. And then some scientists said if it leaks, it's yeah. 120 times worse. Than... It's not 120, but I, I, I give them a number. <laughs> now, of course, if you have a meeting, the first leak, year, the first yeah. year, it says oh, 100 yeah, times fir- oh, yeah, okay. worse. Yeah, than, because yeah. it's uh, if you have a meeting leaks, CH4 is much worse to put out in the atmosphere in the short run. Yeah. But of course, the half time of methane is much less than CO2. So in a 20 year uh, time frame. Yeah. It's about 85 times worse than CO2. If you do a 100-year cycle, it's about 28 times worse than CO2. And then, of course, it starts to decline. But it means that if you're putting a lot of methane out in the atmosphere, you will have really quick warm-up of the yeah. planet. And, and, and that's why we had this as a topic on our uh, Investor Day in February 2020. We had a separate section on uh, methane emissions. Yeah. Because this is a really quick way of uh, reducing global warming because yeah. the potency of methane is so high compared to CO2. And of course, there was this methane pledge to reduce uh, methane emissions now on uh, this uh, COP, last COP in Scotland. They, they wanted to reduce it by 30% by 2030. Yeah. I, I think you know, that ambition is way too low because there's a lot. Uh, we had a graph on our investor day that almost half of the methane emissions are profitable. So not only are you helping the environment, but you're actually making a profit yeah. doing it. So it is no, and then maybe 80% of the methane emissions are technically feasible to reduce today to almost zero. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you look at the numbers for Equinor on their methane emissions for the Norwegian continental shelf, uh, uh, it's virtually nothing. So they have been able to do it because of regulation in terms of reducing the methane emissions there. So, uh, you know, usually the problem is in economics, uh, you don't have a price of it. There should be a price of uh, methane leaks. If there were a price, those those methane emissions will come down. Uh, So, so for sure. Uh, That's why we also have nine of our 13 ships are Maggi, where where you have methane emissions is virtually zero. So Interesting. So, uh, let's do some fun questions at the end. Uh, it's summertime, people maybe have a vacation, want to learn new skills, craft new skills, which can make, make them better in their professional work. Are there anything, like everyone is talking about ChatGPT, of course, but <laughs> do you have any other uh, skills you see there is a bigger need of, so if people want to, to develop new skills? Where do you point them? Everybody is talking about AI and ChatGPT, but we actually been using it in our business for some time now. Um, so of course, uh, if you go back a couple of years, then the big thing was big data. Um, so on our LNG ships, we have a hell of a lot of sensors. So no, no, step number one was to kind of collect all that data 
uh, and then collect it in the cloud. Um, and then you have what you would call then big data. We have big data sets. And then the next level is going from data to analytics. So you put on an analytics module. And then when you get analyzing, then you want to have something happening. So the next level then is uh, AI and machine learning. So we've been implementing this uh, on our ships, you know, <laughs> some time ago mm. where we kind of we can get this big data and the analytics and actually get uh, kind of uh, the computer or the software or whatever you want to call it giving us instruction to maybe change the way we are running our business and actually we can all the time learn about it because the more data and analytics you get you the better you can you run your company so so for us that's uh, actually a good way of, of, of learning and trying to especially cut fuel consumption. Um, yeah, that's the big one, often, yeah. right? Yeah, so fuel consumption and more like predictive maintenance because you had like conditional based maintenance and to start rather than, you know, uh, walking around and looking at how stuff looks, you kind of get sensors to kind of give you and telling you you know you should start doing the maintenance. So, so AI, I think it's uh, it's in the infancy. This is going to be pretty big. Um, uh, do you need to hire people to understand it and do it, or is yeah, the systems well, going to take care of it themselves? No, no. Of course, we hire people to do it, and uh, uh, you need people with the right skill set. So we have hired data analysts to do this, and of course, we have also cooperation with uh, with other companies like Arundo Analytics, where. Uh, we have a cooperation. Uh, you cannot invent everything yourself. You need to rely on other people. We have a very good model where we outsource uh, quite a lot of our um, you know, businesses. So we outsource a lot to other people and we can learn from them, which can also keep us lean. Yeah. What's on your reading list this summer? Oof. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just finished a book which was really good, Material World. So um, you know, last summer I read this Vaclav Smil uh, book, How the World Really Works, where he goes through you know a lot of the challenges with the energy transition, and he focuses on a couple of uh, kind of uh, materials. I think at the top of my head, it's cement, plastics, ammonia. Uh, and it's the last know. steel. I think the steel was the last one. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, okay. yeah so uh, so that uh, was a really good book. So uh, it's a bit like a follow-up this summer, uh, just recently pu- published, Material World by Ed Conway, where he goes, yeah, it's a bit similar, but it's uh, sand, oh, it's uh, lithium, oil and gas, Ooh. <laughs> yeah. There's six difference. Okay. Uh, so, uh, and, and you know, explain how diff- copper. Yeah, copper is one of them, of course. And it travels around the world, different mines, uh, to figure out how uh, immense work it is to kind of produce one ton of copper, yeah. uh, or you know, uh, whether you are making, you know, sand sounds like eh, salt is one of them as well. Oh, yeah. So, but like sand is like. You need it for kind of uh, the fiber optics. You know, you need to have like the perfect glass that can, can conduct uh, the, 
uh, not really conduct because it's not really it's a superconductor but still it's a it's a very good book it explains how difficult and how dependent we are on these sources in order to run the modern world even though most of us never have any idea about it um, but but do you do you take the side of some of those books give a pessimistic view or do you think it actually gives a reasonable view on how hard this transition is going to be because you can take both sides and have a fair argument and i think eva klaus mil he's a professor so he's a, like a prolific writer uh, he, i guess he's a bit more pessimistic than material world but still uh, <laughs> it's not really easy to replace some of these feedstock and of course the uh, the cost of finding new substitutes are immense um so uh, no but you know it's it's in- interesting yeah. uh, i think also if you look at uh, one book it is uh, it's a bit it's not a new book it probably came out in 21 22 the future is faster than you expect or something mm. have you read that one no i haven't it's about uh yeah it's about all the new technology that will come the next uh, next decade yeah it's uh But it's maybe if you go to the other side of the coast to get those flying cars books and high tech and solar from space. So if you yeah. combine those materials, maybe you have the right balance. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we have a we have a just the last segue. It's a fun one. Um, you're getting more and more well known for the merch. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I didn't I, bring I, any. I, I don't. <laughs> I don't have the whole story, but mm. we have. We have sunglasses, we have sunscreen to protect against inflation. We have a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> What's the most uh, undersupplied merch where you see that the upside was you didn't have enough supply because it hit up so well? I, probably the sunglasses because we ran out of them very quickly. So I think we need to have a new uh, new edition there. Um, well, what no. flopped? Flopped. I think maybe Bedlin, the, sun, the sun, sunscreen was a bit too cheap. <laughs> and what will come in the future? Or is that all? all no, that all? Uh, we don't know yet. We come up with them, uh, you know, when we talk to each other and suddenly one guy have an idea. So we don't really have any plan for this. <laughs> and the last one, the flex beer. What's the story behind that? Ah, that's uh, that's brewed in Voss by um, the Voss Hornbryggeri or something like that. It's uh, owned by Arne Hjeltnes, who quite famous on TV here in Norway. So uh, some of us, uh, one guy knew him, so contacted him, and we may were able to 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 make some flex on the beach summer beer for our uh, party here at No Shipping. That's perfect, Esten. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's always a pleasure having you on. Yeah, good to see you again. If you like this episode and the content we produce, head over to my YouTube channel. Just type in Christopher Vornheim. See you next time. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vornheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Vornheim. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vornheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only.